0: Hey everybody, before we get started, I need to thank the folks at Memphis Fire Station number 21. If you're new to this show, Memphis, Tennessee is where I live. A few months back, we had some wires sparking and smoking outside of our home on a Sunday afternoon. These guys were here in three minutes and were true pros. Experiences like this made me want to do this episode. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy it. This conversation with Chief Sweat was recorded on January 3rd.
1: 2023. It was kind of a defining moment when I was, I was going to quit because it was just too much. My partner got injured in a fire. He got trapped under some uh, bales of paper that fell on him, and he was trapped, and we had to dig him out, and it was a career-ending injury for him. And then a little over a month after that, uh, 750 Adams, uh, I was a young rookie, really, only two years on the job. When we responded to that call, where two firefighters got killed. So those happened that quick, and I was so young on the job. You know, it was kind of that defining moment. Was I going to stay on this job or not? And uh, I'm glad I decided to stay, but it uh, it was touch and go there for a minute. I mean, not everybody gets a chance to say, yeah, I saved somebody's life today.
0: Hey, everybody, and welcome. I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. This show is filled with wide ranging conversations that will bring you insights, experiences, and expertise through the stories of what each of my guests are building. Driven by Podcast is produced by Driven by Sam Coates. And for more information on how my talented team and I serve entrepreneurs, corporations, and private families, tell their stories go to drivenbysamcoats.com. Also, for more podcast episodes and to sign up, go to drivenbysamcoats.com backslash podcast. Before we get going, let's hear from this week's sponsor. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, But if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the US. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, ab jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS that's j-e-t-s my guest this week is memphis fire chief gina sweat chief sweat was selected to be the first female director of fire services in Memphis, Tennessee, and there were only a handful of female fire chiefs nationally when she was selected. The world of fire departments is changing. Chief Sweat says in this episode that 80% of their calls are medical, so gone are the days when you're only going to just fight fires. This is a great episode that covers the following, what it's like living with the responsibility of 1,600 plus firefighters that put themselves in harm's way each and every day remembering the tragedies and those that gave their lives when they were just doing their job, what the future of fire departments look like, and why they must continue to innovate to add value to the communities they are a part of, plus a whole lot more. Thanks for listening, and please enjoy this week's episode with Memphis Fire Chief, Gina Sweat. Chief Sweat, great to see you.
1: All right, hey, great to see you.
0: Thanks for letting me come to your house.
1: Well, uh, not quite my house, but I do feel like it is, since I, I stay here almost as much as I do at my house.
0: Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Your office is right down the middle, you know, yeah. you're able to watch guard.
1: That's true. and This is, you know, it's our brand new headquarters, uh, and uh, I'm wow. glad you noticed that, because that's exactly the way we designed it.
0: Yeah, it's very nice. You have 1,623 firefighters here in the city of Memphis, is that correct?
1: That's right. When we're fully staffed, it's 1,623
0: For people that haven't asked you or haven't heard, what's it like having the responsibility of these many firefighters across the city and knowing the calls you get in the middle of the night?
1: Well, first of all, you know, everybody, you see kids think they want to grow up and be a firefighter, be, you know, a lot of times they want to be the chief. And uh, with that comes a lot of responsibility, though, just from being a line firefighter and coming up through the ranks. I've done most of the positions out there in the field. So uh, I know what they go through on a daily basis. And uh, I couldn't be more proud to be, you know, the leader of this great organization and the work that they do every day. But first and foremost, it's a it's a tremendous amount of responsibility because um, they do all the great work out on the streets, you know, making it happen, responding day in, day out, 24-7, no matter what the weather is. Um, but my job is to make sure they have the resources to do that, make sure that they're trained properly, make sure that um, they get what they need to do the job well. You know, that's equipment, that's, I uh, said, the, the, the training. Make sure, you know, they live in these fire stations, you know, to make sure their living conditions are uh, as best as we can make them for them so that they're comfortable. And then, uh, you know, any obstacles that, that gets in the way of them being able to do their job, that, that becomes my responsibility, and, and I take that really serious.
0: How do you go about that, given that many people, these challenges – working with a budget that's out of your control?
1: Well, I think I think you said it best. I don't do it by myself. I have a team uh, that I surround myself with, uh, and I rely on them to be the experts in their areas that they're over. Um, obviously, I can't be an expert at everything. Uh, some things, I'm, I think I'm really good at building a good team. Uh, so that's what I've done. Uh, they have a lot of freedom to come to talk to me. They can disagree with me. We can talk about ideas. I love the word innovation. I love to try new things, um, especially things that, that make uh, our service better or it helps our fire EMS personnel to be better. So those are the kind of ideas that they they are free to bring to me. And then, um, like I said, I just have to work uh, to try to figure out new ways to um, get the resources on the ground. I, and I'll give you an example. Uh, as budgets uh, either stay flat or they don't increase at the level we would like them to. We've had to find different ways. Um, so we put together a grants team that looks, that's looks that gone out and looked for grants to help fund some of these other things uh, like um, staff, helping with staffing. So that team in the last six or seven years has put in over $54 million in grants to help with staffing, to help uh, purchase equipment and things like that. So you go, uh, you find new ways to tackle some of these old problems, and you give people the uh, autonomy to be able to go out there and do that and bring those things to the table.
0: That's like a 30-year budget. How many years did you say that was for $54 million?
1: So that we started that that team in 2017, like the year afterwards. Okay, so, so it's like
0: five, so on average, $10 million a year.
1: Yeah, so they've they've uh, got several grants for staff to supplement staffing that help us start our lateral hiring program. Uh, we also got a very large grant to replace our uh the SCBA, which that's the breathing apparatus uh, that allow our firefighters to go into uh, burning buildings. Uh, so that was a, that was, a, that was about an $8 million grant there. And that saved, you know, that was money that the city didn't have to pay because our system was antiquated and they had to be replaced. So there's things that we do like that. Our healthcare navigator program gets a lot of attention in the media and everything. And uh, Chief Spratling's over that program and we, through our uh, fire, Memphis Fire Department Foundation, uh, we've been able to find uh, grants to help supplement the program they're doing there, either you know purchasing vehicles or apparatus, or helping to support some of the staffing issues they have there.
0: So, is this are these federal dollars?
1: Uh, we're we're not too proud. We'll take grants from anywhere. So a lot of those are federal grants. Some of them come through the state, and then uh, some of the ones that we get through our fire foundation are from other nonprofits. Uh, in the city that have helped us really boost up uh, our healthcare navigator program.
0: Earlier, before we were recording, I was asking you some questions just about your work and the responsibility. And you just said, you know, people say they want to do things, but if you're going to do something like this, you got to want it. And it's got to be in you because you're not doing it for the external because it's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but an example like that where you're having to get creative, things are tight, it's clear that people need things and you want to do whatever you can. And so that's where you kind of have to get gritty, I guess. Right? Can you maybe speak to public service as a whole and what you've learned, what you've seen, who you look up to, who you don't respect? How do you go into public service, have a strong career and be proud of what you've done and, and play the long game with it?
1: Well, that's a, that's a tricky one. We talk about thirty years in the fire service, and uh, I got a lot of battle battle scars. Some of them are are obvious; you can tell when I get up and down. My knees uh, hurt. uh, The wear and tear on your body, the emotional wear and tear, the mental wear and tear, that's not necessarily as visible, but that's that's kind of what weighs on you over time. You know, our firefighters, uh, myself included. When I was, you see things that some people just you don't ever want to have to see, and uh, you know, so all of those things wear and tear on you. But when you're uh, coming up through the ranks, you know, I learned from all of that. I learned from some bad chief officers along the way, and I learned from some good ones. So, you know, I think you can learn more from the bad ones, actually, because you figure out how you don't want to do things if you're ever given that opportunity. So uh, that's kind of was my learning curve. I always uh, looked to be whatever team I was on or whatever group work group I was in. I uh, always found out what how I contributed best. I'm, uh, a lot of in the fire service, when you start talking, especially women, one of the first things is, well, women aren't as strong as men. Well, that's true in some ways, physically maybe, but sometimes emotionally, you know, we handle things differently as well. Uh, especially now that uh, the fire service, there is so much of what we do is, is medical. 80% of our call volume are medical calls. So, you know, you get, you steer away from a profession that used to just be really focusing on your physical capabilities to now you're more, uh, there's the medical aspect. And even with our other programs that are dealing with people, trying to get them to more appropriate resources where they don't use the emergency rooms, all of those things takes a different type of personality than maybe what once was to just be a firefighter. Now you're having to help people in the community navigate. Uh, all the other issues that are going on and to try to figure out how can I help this person, not just go put their burning house out and then leave. So many things where, you know, you make, uh, when you're making these calls on people, you get to build relationships with some of them, especially, you know, that they're responding to them over and over. So uh, they get to know these people and trying to figure out a way to help them. So I think it takes a, it takes a, you know, you got to be compassionate you got to be willing. Obviously, you got to be strong, but you have to be strong mentally, physically, and emotionally every day.
0: Do you think every firefighter gets to a point to where things may get so bad at a season where they think about quitting?
1: Oh, absolutely. I,
0: did you have that season?
1: I absolutely did. And you know, and you know, sometimes even now you're, <laughs> you know, I wonder why. Uh, I tell you this. So, I, I there was a question. I used to ask my uh, deputy chief. He's retired. I was like, why? Why did I? Dis- why did I do this? And he would go, because you wanted to make a difference. I'm like, okay, thanks, I need to hear that. I need to hear that today. Um, but, yeah, I had that uh, early in my career. I responded to a couple of incidents. There was kind of a defining moment when, when I was I was going to quit because it was just too much, and I was just, What you saw. Yeah, yeah. So I had—my uh, partner got injured uh, in a fire. He got trapped under some uh, bales of paper that fell on him, and he was trapped, and we had to dig him out, and it was a career-ending injury for him. And then a little over a month after that, uh, 750 Adams, uh, I was a young rookie, really, only two years on the job when we responded to to that call where two firefighters got killed. So those happened that quick, and I was so young on the job, uh, you know, it was kind of that defining moment, was I going to stay on this job or not? And uh, I'm glad I decided to stay, but it uh, it was touch and go there for a minute.
0: What got you through?
1: I think it's just like you said. I hate to use the term grit. I know you used it earlier, and I know it get used tossed around a lot. But I guess I just gritted it out. I had been on the job long enough that I, I loved it. And one of the things I'll tell you is, being a firefighter is not something you do; it's something you become. So, kind of once you become a, a firefighter and you get it's becomes a part of who you are. It's it's kind of hard to find anything else that's that kind of fills that gap. You know, if you want to look at a different profession,
0: there's a desire, there's a passion inside of you, and when you mm-hmm. when you're out there on your best days, you know what it feels like, and it's hard to feel at home any, with doing anything else. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, there, there's that. You know, there's uh, you know, there's the adrenaline. You know, there's a lot of alpha personalities in the fire service. You know, is there adrenaline from being, from the, the things that we do uh, and being that person that uh, can make a difference and stop you know, stop some of the bad things from happening and and help people through that. So I think, you know, there's that. There's the desire to want to make a difference in your community and to help people. I mean, not everybody gets a chance to say, yeah, I saved somebody's life today. And, you know, once you've done that, that feeling and, and even some, not very often, but sometimes even getting to meet those people later or going back and seeing them and knowing that you had a part in that, you know, that's what makes, I think that's what keeps all of us going.
0: That thing inside of you.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think uh, if you don't have it when you join the job, I think you you get, that those that stay get it, and those that don't stay, They don't know, find it. A- they apparently just, you know. And I say the fire service isn't for everybody. Just because you can physically do it doesn't mean you should do it. You've got to have the heart. you got to have the heart for service to be able to do it and do it for the long haul.
0: How do you think about that from a, rec- just a recruitment standpoint, as an example, there's a group that I'm familiar with that, I mean, they have similar size of people that we've talked about here so far, but they talk about it doesn't matter how much, you know, how much money you throw at things. Like, you got to find the right people.
1: It is. It's it's even, a, it's especially harder now. We, we won't get into all the whole generational differences, but you can think about. A uh, firefighter's career lasting 25 years before retirement. So, in a fire station, you can have someone who's been on 25 years and somebody's been on 25 days, and the age difference that you have in, in the different generational gaps that we have. But um, it's not like you said; it's not just a strong body that we're looking. You know, the fire service has changed. The fire departments are changing. So we have to. I were, there was a time. You know, if you listen to the old uh, the old heads on the fire department, they'll tell you, well, back when I came on, I went to the Mid-South Coliseum, and there was 5,000 people lined up to get a job. Yeah, those days are over for, for most fire departments across the country. I talk to my peers, and people just aren't flocking to careers in public service anymore. So like you said, we're having to get more creative too. We, uh, you know, there's more technology involved now uh, than used to be. Even our fire trucks uh, and fire engines are different as far as just operating, you know, hose lines and things like that. There's, com- we can actually use computer technology now on a lot of these things. We just, uh, fire recruitment center, I just, uh, we've got a new virtual reality trainer that you can put on and it's actually like you're going into a burning building with heat vests and everything, so you know, I see, I see your eyes lighting up. I know it sounds, so those are the kind of things you have to have. Uh, and, and not to even mention, you know, the whole medical side of it. You know, so once you become a paramedic, you're just a few classes away really from being a nurse. And we know through the pandemic, you see what our, you know, our demand for nurses are. So we're struggling, you know, holding on to our paramedics because they have other opportunities out there for does, them in the medical field. Does
0: every firefighter have to train to be a EMT as well,
1: yes. Yeah, so we hire them, and they have uh, within their first four years, they have to go through the EMT basic, advance, and then become a paramedic.
0: And so, if you become an EMT, you're only you're only a, just a few hours or whatever away from being a nurse.
1: Uh, there's there's a quick, there's a bridge class that you can do.
0: So, but then when you go be a nurse, you get a significant from mm-hmm. a financial standpoint, you get a bump there.
1: You so, could, yeah.
0: So, so potentially there's another option there that affects right. your department
1: right there there's other options that uh you know firefighters and firefighter paramedics there's other career opportunities out there for them if they choose not to stay
0: into the fire into the fire department What's the gratitude what's the joy what's the fulfillment? Let's say you're meeting with somebody in they're nineteen twenty or twenty three twenty four and they say, "Hey, what's it like to spend three decades doing this work? Why should I consider doing it and you know what's the reward at the end of the day?
1: Well, so the good thing is um, I didn't realize when I was a kid, I knew that there was a pension program. I didn't really realize how valuable that was. And so now that I'm looking at the back end of that, the seeing and talking to my friends that, that had to uh, plan, do their own financial planning and everything. So, um, you know, we do have a pension program. I know there's been changes Everybody that has been, there's been some changes to it, but it's still a really good benefit. A lot of people tell you, you're probably not going to get rich being a firefighter, paramedic, doing that job. But it's it's steady employment. You're going to have good benefits. You're going to have insurance. You're going to be able to raise a family, uh, have a nice home, car, all of those kind of things. And at the end of the day, you know, there is that. But more than anything, I, I look back on the memories I've had, the different people I've met, the different uh, places I've been able to go, just... You know, we made a fire last week at an independent living center, and uh, I don't, I don't often respond to a lot of calls until it's significant like that. Um, but just being there and being able to, to just talk to those residents and seeing, knowing how many of those people uh, were pulled out of that building by our firefighters, and being able to walk around and, and put my hands on their shoulders and give them a blanket or what you know, I mean that's. That's why you do it.
0: Was that at night or during yeah, the day? Yeah, it
1: was during it was at night. So And you
0: just got up out of bed? And...
1: Well, I got woke up for on that one because it was a, it was a significant uh fire. You know, but to see when you make a difference in somebody's life or to see now for me, I don't get to first hand do it, but I get a lot of the thank yous from it when I go out in, into the public almost always when I go somewhere somebody will tell me a great story about something that our firefighters did that either saved them or one of their family members or their neighbors. Mind you, we do get some complaints. That's any business. But overwhelmingly, mostly what I hear is, is the great things that our firefighters and our paramedics are out there doing on the streets, um, whether it's helping a kid with a, with something with their homework after school or, like I said, responding to the you know, worst-case scenario in some of these people's lives.
0: So what happened there? You're, it's in the middle of the night. You get a call. There's a fire at a senior living facility. People, they, they might not be able to get out themselves, or right. they might take a long time. Mm-hmm. So it was a pressing deal. You get that call, and then what? What's going through your head?
1: Well, I don't know if I should use that language on <laughs> on here. You can but say whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. That's the first thing. It's like, oh no, or oh crap. Uh, uh, so uh, I don't, res- you know, I don't often respond unless it's something significant. It's one of those. They hit you in the gut, like, oh God, this could be bad. So I'm in route. I'm driving. It was raining. I'm listening on the radio. I know that there were some some people that were unaccounted for, that they were still. They're talking about pulling people out. So I'm processing yeah. all of that, and just you know, you think about that, and that that as you see the fire scene or you hear the fire scene deteriorating, I know that they're doing all they can, and I, you know, then you're worried about your personnel because. Uh, what they will do, they will risk their lives for a perfect stranger. So then you start worrying about your fire, you know, the firefighter's safety. And even because I've been on, you know, I know a lot of my, and I hear, start hearing certain people's voices that I know and I've worked with them for 20, 30 years, you know. And just because I've, you know, part of my leadership style is to kind of take my time to get to know people and you can tell by their voices when things are not good or, and, uh, just all of that process and all that while you're still trying to drive around the interstate and get to where you're going, I probably should look at getting me a driver so I could. But,
0: uh, <laughs> yeah, I was wondering that in my head.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't have a driver. Um But, you know, just well, process. Well, things
0: go south with me, I'll, I'll be your driver. Okay, that
1: sounds good. I have, That'd be uh, fun. Yeah, you just, uh, whatever happens in the chief's car stays there, right? You can't yes, be ma'am. telling nobody where we go. Yes, ma'am. But, you know, it's just, you know, that's my, as the chief, that's my job. It's the, oh, my God, there's this could be really bad. We could have a lot of victims to worrying about firefighters because I know they'll go above and beyond what they probably should do sometimes trying to save as many lives as possible. And then just just processing all that and just trying to make sure that they have everything they need on the scene, that we all the bases that are covered.
0: Is it also fair to say that you know some of the people there and you know that they're going to risk it?
1: Oh, absolutely. So
0: you know that somebody's going to put whoever it is at harm above themselves. So you... Then you start to think about these people that you know and you've been with for a decade or two decades, and you're thinking about them as a as a friend, as a coworker. Is that yeah. fair?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, they they're we're all brothers and sisters. I mean, we grow up, and and that's not just. I mean, here in Memphis, we've built those specific relationships, but you can go anywhere in the, across the country. And I can walk in a fire station and tell them I'm a firefighter. And for most part, it's like, oh, come on in, get a cup of coffee, or yeah, it's a, just a different type of. It's really almost more like a lifestyle because you do live in the fire station. You know, up do to, to you get promoted up to chief, and then they won't let me live in the fire station anymore. <laughs> but uh, you know, for the first 16 years of my career, I, I lived in the fire station, worked You know, with in the fire stations. Uh, you cook meals together and train together and watch TV. All of the things you do at home, you know, you share those moments with the, these people in the fire stations. And then the next five minutes, you know, their lives could be on the line. Yeah. And it does, you know, it does scare me when I hear, you know, you can tell things are getting a little edgy by some people's voices just because I've known them for so long.
0: Have you personally been in a situation where you went into something and you, you thought, I might not come out?
1: Yeah, a few times.
0: What's that like?
1: It's it's kind of like it's like one of those oh my oh my God is this it kind of feeling. Uh, you know, sometimes if you get turned around, get lost, get separated from your from your team. I've had that happen, and you know that's when you really have to rely back on your training and staying calm. You know, there's two things you can do. You can either panic or you can try to get your composure and try to figure a way out of that. And I would say that's, you got to train for that. That's not, that don't just come naturally to anybody. So, you know, in those times, you got to try to find a calm spot, get your head together, and figure out a direction to get out of this situation. So that's, you know, that's happened a few times. Uh, Being on the scene, to be honest with you, as a firefighter, that happened a few times. It was even more terrifying to me when I was a battalion chief running fires on the outside and being responsible for all my firefighters inside and having some really close calls there. Those probably scared me worse than myself being in danger.
0: The responsibility of it. Yeah. And being directly involved.
1: Absolutely, because, you know, those were my my guys and girls, and not only them, but also, you know, you have relationships with their families and, you know, their wives and husbands and some of their kids— and uh you know that's never something you want to have to go tell someone's loved one
0: yeah thanks
1: oh, thank for you for answering.
0: If this is something you share, if not, we'll skip it. How many open positions do you think you have right now
1: so we actually we have a class that should be graduating actually graduating uh the second week of January, and then we're following. we'll have another class starting in february um so I think. Right now, we're about 50 positions down.
0: But you're going to replenish and them then, with that class?
1: Yeah, we'll replenish them with that class. So, but a class takes uh, 12 weeks to finish. So, there's some, there's a little some, bit gaps, of, in some gaps in between there <laughs> when uh, we have to fill staffing, you know, in the field with overtime.
0: Yeah, I need to be checked on this. I always say that when I throw out data, but <laughs> I saw where the United States military. In 1991, it had 2.1 million people. Again, I need to be checked, but in 2020, 1.3. So it's been interesting from a firefighter standpoint. I saw 1980, there was, nationally, there was 358,000. Right now, I saw a number like 364,000. I also saw another number like 317,000. Has there been a decrease over time of the number of firefighters around the country?
1: Uh, it's interesting, yeah. Interesting you ask that because I was actually just looking at some of this data for a presentation I'm doing. I think that 360 number sounds about a little closer. And the career fire service is not as bad as the volunteer. So if you count volunteers, there's over uh, a million firefighters in the United States. Right. And the volunteer departments are seeing a significant decrease in the number of firefighters. So k- careers
0: kind of held steady, flat. It's kind of... involuntary. It's been a right. little
1: little ebb and flow that I've noticed when I was kind of looking over some gap, but the, the volunteers are really having, they're really struggling to keep, you know, keep those numbers coming that's in. Stuff
0: staff. And where I'm going with that question, I'm curious about what you see for the future because it seems that because of technology, because of policy, because of how things are built, I mean, you said earlier that 80% of the calls y'all have are medical, and it sounds like there's been change and, and just things have evolved and what people are trained on and the responsibilities they cover. So what does the future look like to you?
1: So we'll say in Memphis, we do fire and EMS, and we do response and we transport. A lot of departments, I think, and I'm, I'm not sure on those percentages, I'd have to look them up, but a lot of departments only do firefighting. Uh, in the departments that do fire and EMS, to me that's a good thing for you because if you just do fire, it's hard to justify the staffing needs that are met to to have a appropriately staffed fire department if that's all you do because <laughs> over the years our uh, EMS call volume goes up anywhere from 6 to 10% a year where our fire call de- uh, has pretty much remained flat around about that 22,000 23,000 calls a year. Now those are incidents, those aren't all fires. Right. So our call our fire call volume has pretty much remained steady, but our EMS volume continues to go up. So I think uh, you know what happened in 1966 when they brought on EMS here in Memphis is you took tried to take full advantage of your manpower staffing, you know, the downtime between actually fighting fires and finding something else that firefighters could do. I think it's going to be important for us for the future. Like, okay, is there more that we can do to justify, you know, having enough, a well-staffed fire department and still being able to fill those downtown gaps? Is there other things that we might be able to contribute to the community?
0: Like what? Do you have any ideas?
1: I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Um, So one of the things we talk about, so uh, in the early fire services, you used to hear uh, Chicago burning they would have these huge conflagrations, and, and whole cities or whole blocks would burn down. And then we had fire prevention came along, where we started focusing on how did we prevent the fires from occurring. So, I, but is
0: that community outreach? And that things? was the
1: community outreach. That's sprinkler systems. That's uh, the types of uh, products they were using. Being in proactive
0: and so reactive. Yeah.
1: So there's this whole focus on fire prevention, and over you know a hundred years or so. Uh, as you hear me say, our fire fighting, our fires have kind of remained steady. So, you know, with sprinkler systems and smoke alarms to so get early detection, all of that kind of worked. We don't, you don't hear about a whole city block or a whole city's burning down anymore. I kind of see EMS as our new conflagration. Like EMS is overrunning our fire service. And this is one of the things our healthcare navigator program focuses on is how It's almost like EMS prevention. Like, how do we help people be more well so that they don't have to rely on calling EMS and 911 to get them to an emergency room? So how do we get them to a more appropriate resource? That's uh, a little bit about what they do, but I think that's somewhere I think we should start looking at for the future down the road is, how do we get people to better health outcomes where they don't... Aren't so reliant upon nine one one and calling an ambulance in our emergency rooms to take care of their some of their health issues. So it's kind of like preventing the the nine one one call for a medical reason before it ever happens.
0: And there's nobody to fill that void other than the fire department.
1: Well, there's I mean, there's already you know there's a lot of organizations that try to help people. Um,
0: but but that's of no cost, right, to the citizen. Exactly. Other than what. You don't pay a bill to the fire department, but you pay a bill for the ambulance.
1: Once you're transported, yes. Right. right. So, I mean,
0: right. it's a complete benefit to the citizens, but there's no other, I mean, any hospital, any type of telemedicine or anything like that, there's a cost to it. And Absolutely. There's no other entity or there's no other organization that has direct access to the citizen and that they can call other than the fire department for those things, Correct.
1: Absolutely. When you call 911, if, if it's not a crime or a police matter, every, almost everything else comes to us. Hey,
0: everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers Is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. It sounds that you have been focused and curious about how the fire department can continue to add value to the citizens of the city that you're a part of. And you're saying that the people that have not navigated things well or people that only tried to do things the way they had always been done. Uh, and what you're saying into the future is as these gaps continue to happen, how can the fire department continue to evolve and be innovative to fill these gaps in the communities? Am I, I, am I understanding you correctly?
1: I, I think that that was that was maybe more eloquently than I could <laughs> uh, But yeah, I think there's, I think that's part of, we're, we're standing in the gap between life and death a lot of times, and it's not always like I said, it's not always a ride to the emergency room. Is it's there are other ways that we can help people? And I think that's for us to continue to evolve and to remain relevant. I think that's where you know where we kind of need to focus. And like I said, our, I think our uh, our navigator program does that some. I give you another example. You know, during the COVID crisis, you know, we ended up uh, being responsible for the vaccine distribution that in this in the county. That's not necessarily a fire department function I don't have a, a vaccination unit but I have a lot of people that are willing to help other people and we just we pulled it together and we made it happen figured it out we figured it out and so I think that happens to us a lot is in the fire service is nobody else wants to do it and we're like that last line of defense and we do, we figure out a way to help people and that's I'm pretty proud of that
0: so I guess what you're saying is y'all don't have the luxury of saying that's not my job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we don't use that around here.
0: Do people feel appreciated or do you feel like people, they don't really feel appreciated and you don't really hear about anything unless there's a problem?
1: You know, that's a tricky one. You know, sometimes uh, just the culture in general, like sometimes people like to complain. But I do know that we go out of our way to try to tell them we appreciate them and show appreciation I do know that the citizens appreciate what we do because they tell me all the time. I think part of the problem is is when our people are on the scene, it's usually about one of the worst days these people are having in their lives. It's gonna be this this incident is gonna be life can be life changing for they don't always feel the niceties of saying please and thank you in that moment. So it is sometimes you do probably go back to the station and like, wow, I just saved their life and they didn't even tell me thank you. I don't think we do it for that. So I think, you know, that's amongst ourselves. We have to uh, build each other up and and let people know that, you know, what you're doing matters. I I do try to, you know, let the firefighters and paramedics and dispatchers and and everyone know uh, when I can find out specifically, you know, of an incident that they did well, we try to do that. But I don't think anybody's here just for the pat on the back. I think you have to just know that what you're doing makes a difference. Uh, in a lot of ways. Do you think
0: things have just been as they always have been? Or do you think society has become less grateful for public servants?
1: I do think the fire service, you know, is often uh, seen in a really positive light for the most part. And I think we still enjoy a very positive image in the community. I think, the, and I think it's because of what I said earlier. I think it's because when we show up, uh, when we leave, their house is no longer on fire. Or you know, a lot of times you know we're there dealing with a medical emergency, and, and maybe it's not as emergent as they thought it was. So they think that we're you know that we're taking care of their loved ones. Um, so I do think we appreciate uh, a lot of public support. You know, me personally, it the last few years uh, it seemed like there you know society has kind of been a little harder on people, and there's some some things going on that I don't always understand, especially the driving. Like I don't know if, if COVID, I don't know if, if COVID is related to bad driving, <laughs> um, but that's a real problem for for our first responders on, operating on the roadways. Um, I don't like you said, I don't know if it's angry driving or uh, is it cell phones not paying attention. Um, I do know that running into burning and I've, I've said this like like running into burning buildings is almost the least dangerous thing that we do. It is much more dangerous for our first responders out here on the roadways, especially the interstate responding to accidents and dealing with things. So it does seem like everybody's always in a hurry to get somewhere or to get nowhere, and that even puts our, our first responders in more danger. So,
0: Like, and I'm sorry, yeah. David Pleasant.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Perfect example of what you're saying.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, that was uh, absolutely uh, senseless. Uh, there's no reason that really had to happen. You know, 30-plus years in the fire service, he was just doing his job, and doing it with a steady pace his whole career, he was one of those guys that just got it done. But since it, we've had several close calls uh, on the interstate, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we're going to work with the state legislature to at least try to people that don't obey the move-over laws at least double those penalties. And then if you cause serious injury or death of a, of a public safety employee, I'm not sure what that will look like, but I think that the penalty should be stiffer for that as well.
0: You literally just said it's more dangerous for our are people responding to a call, driving, than it is mm-hmm. running into the, the structure. From a strategic standpoint, from a law standpoint, from a change standpoint, how do you go about trying to protect your people to push change in a positive way to like make an impact on actually reducing the risk and the harm that people have the potential of facing by just responding to go take care of somebody else?
1: That one I'm still working through. You know, it's a lot of things. It's training, for one, because you have to train to respond to that. Like I said, they running into a burning building. We're trained to do that. Every Even though it may look chaotic, everybody knows their role, and for the most part, it's kind of organized chaos at a fire scene. We're trained how to handle, how to read smoke conditions, all of those things. But you're not really, I mean, we're trained for it, but you can't expect the unexpected on these on these roadways in the interstate. So there's training. There's getting them the equipment they need to be to, to be more visible. We're having to use fire apparatus now to block off the roadway ahead of the scene so that the people working on accidents can can work more safely. But that's an expensive expensive option because when people we've had several of our fire trucks were ran into, it did its job. It protected our firefighters whose lives are priceless in my mind. Um, but it is expensive trying to repair and keep our fire trucks operational. You know, like I said, it's marketing to the public. How do you get the public to understand that what they're doing is putting not just their lives in danger, but it's keeping our first responders first is putting our first responders' lives in danger. And then whoever's home that they were responding to, now that you've, you know, endangered more citizens. So um, looking at how how do you get this message out and that's one of the reasons I mention it today, because every time I have a chance to To talk about it, I am. You're doing it. I'm doing it.
0: And so with all these challenges or with these things outside of your control, are you saying the feeling of service, the feeling of having a career, something that you wanted years ago, that's what keeps you optimistic and that's what keeps you pushing ahead? Or is there something else?
1: I don't know if you've ever played whack-a-mole. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I feel (laughs) like I play it a lot. Like you said, as soon as we... You know, you play it all just trying to keep all of the—address all the issues that are going on. Uh, I can say, you know, as a younger firefighter, you know, the excitement of it, you know, actually responding and making a difference in the people's lives that you responded to. You know, I've done that, and now I, I, I do it for the firefighters. I do it for the Memphis—in particular, I do it for the Memphis firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, all the people that work for the Memphis Fire Department, the different groups— I do it for them just because, uh, you know, if I don't do it, who will? And uh, I know that I care about them. I know that I'm fighting for them, and I'm standing up for them. So that's why I get up and do it every day.
0: Yes, ma'am. What are you most excited about with your work?
1: So it's interesting. Things that excite me now is when I get to do things— to help the firefighters, so we built a new. You know, we built a few new fire stations. We've got one under construction now that should open up in February, uh, down on Chelsea. Uh, when I'm able to like fight for CIP funding to do projects inside fire stations. Um, before I came here, we were just talking about a project to um, to do some covered patios and outside grill area and everything for some for some of the fire stations. Things like you like at your house. Like you want a nice covered patio where you can grill out. And right. So we're trying to do No things. beers, though. No <laughs> beers at the fire station, please. <laughs> yes. But um, it's weird that those kind of things excite me now uh, when I'm able to do stuff like that. Uh, we've also, uh, on this campus, we now have a, a in-house recruitment center where we're going to be able to start bringing in uh, kids and stuff out here. and uh, Start talking about uh, careers in the fire service just when I'm able to kind of do things and set the stage for everyone who follows behind me uh that's where I am now I'm just I'm trying to to leave it in a really good spot and uh make sure that the firefighters have what they need and the paramedics have what they need the training they need and uh that's what I do it for
0: What are you most concerned about?
1: Their safety. Their safety uh their wellness um I will say, you know, 30 years in the fire service. But of that, I really only spent—I spent 16 in the years actually responding. The things that they, you know, the things that they're seeing, the things that they're having to do, first you want them to be physically healthy. So trying to figure out ways to, to help them do that emotionally, uh, mentally well, where they're able to kind of just deal with the things they're seeing and we've— uh, different programs that we've put in place so that they can, mental health, you know, so they can take care of their mental health. Like, uh, well, my, my, my most favorite is the therapy dog program we started. Um, uh, we have one that actually works here at headquarters. She's not here today. No, no. Uh, Gracie's not here, but we have— Sad uh,
0: to Miss Gracie.
1: Yeah, we have a, a, a therapy dog program. We have uh, opportunity where they can go online and do talk space, wellness, all of those things. Um And then we even offered some opportunities, some classes in in financial wellness because, you know, that's a big piece. If, you know, if you're financially unstable, you know, that causes a lot of other, you know, personal issues and things that you don't want your firefighters and paramedics and you don't want them worrying about those kind of things when they're at work having to think about life and death situations. So just a lot of things, just trying to help put together programs and give them opportunities to be uh, uh, as well as they can be.
0: Essentially what I feel like you're saying is their whole life. Yeah. Holistically.
1: Yeah. Because What's,
0: what would be what would you say to somebody that said, Why are you spending or why is the department spending these dollars on a new covered area or emotional you know, resources for emotional health or these things about personal, you know, finances and things like that?
1: Well, I would say well, because our personal are people too. You know, they're they're people, they have real lives, they have real life problems just like everybody else uh, in society. But when the tone goes off, they put all of that stuff aside that they're going through personally. They put their physical, emotional, mental well-being on the line to go help perfect strangers. And I think when somebody's coming and making life and death decisions for you, I think you want that person to be... As well as possible, you want them to be as well-equipped as possible. You want them to be able to make good, strong, solid decisions. And uh, I think that's why you want us to do those things. You want us to have healthy personnel. You want them to be well-trained. You want them to have everything that they need. So that that one time in your whole life that you may need to call 911, the people that showed up, took care of business, and uh, made your terrible day, a little bit less terrible.
0: Yes, ma'am. Is there data that you've seen over these decades that makes you see that when the, when the firefighter themselves, not just from an internal standpoint, but when they're actually at their best, healthiest at home, financially, mentally, that you see that impact?
1: I think you see it in the response. I think you see it in uh, longevity. I think when people... Uh, if you want people to have a, a twenty-five year career or twenty-five plus year career, I think uh, to get to that end game and still be uh, <laughs> be able to walk around and uh, and carry on a conversation with somebody, I think you've got to put some of these things in play just so you have a whole person. Whether that, you, know, you get the twenty-five year or the twenty-five day person on the job, they're still the ones coming to your house, so you want to make sure that uh, you know that they've done everything they can.
0: You didn't say this, but you've said this through other things that you've lived it personally. So you know what's worked for you, too, to have Mm. three decades.
1: Yeah, 30 years, you know, a lot of wear and tear on on the joints, uh, mental and emotional. So, you know, I've kind of been there. I've been through some traumatic incidents. I've seen uh, when we didn't have some of the programs that we have now. As a young firefighter, you know, I went, you know, I think I told you earlier, we went through a couple of bad calls there within a month— we didn't really have great programs in place then, and maybe that's why when I became the chief, that's one of the f- things I focused on because I had to find other ways you know, to deal with those emotions uh, myself. There's unhealthy ways that they can deal with the, the, these type of things too, and we want to give them all the healthy options.
0: Like we all can.
1: Exactly. We with always, less stress. Ab- absolutely.
0: Than what your men and women are going through. Absolutely. You're one of the few female fire chiefs throughout the United States, correct?
1: There's more and more. I would say... Uh, well, for metro depo- departments, I think in 2016, I think there were six of us. and We just had a, a conference that was actually here in Memphis this past summer, and uh, I think there were 17, and that's metropolitan chiefs, so that's, yeah. that's big city chiefs. Um, so it's
0: 3 x Since when? When was that first? So that was
1: 2016. Okay. Across the country, um, we're probably in the 60, 75 of chiefs of departments now. It's like almost every day you're starting to see it more and more and more.
0: And I read that in 1977, 2.5 percent of firefighters were women. And again, I need to be checked on this. In 2017, 8.9 percent. Does that sound about right?
1: Actually, I think that number is a little high. I think that's if you count all volunteers and everything. Okay. So if you're just looking at career firefighters, I think we're. I see two numbers. The last, uh, the last numbers up somewhere between 4.4 and 5 percent. Career firefighters are women.
0: Four point four to five percent throughout mm-hmm. the entire throughout
1: the entire unit uh, so of that three hundred and sixty four thousand you mentioned earlier.
0: What have you had to learn or go through about doing your job, being the chief, having respect?
1: I think everything I did before I became the chief set me up for the respect. Anybody that gets a title and thinks that you all of a sudden uh, give respect for that is—I uh, don't play that game. So like from the very beginning, uh, when I was hired, there was two there's another girl in my class, uh, and I think we were the fifth fourth and fifth female firefighters hired. But all along the way I just did the work. You know, it, it sounds really kinda hokey, but uh not doing what I was paid to do was didn't seem like an option to me. Um so whatever uh you know, firefighters from day one they teach you that you never, you're never an individual. You don't do anything by yourself. You work in pairs. You work in teams. And uh, growing up playing sports, that was pretty easy for me to understand the team concept. And uh, you know, I related it to uh, in basketball. You know, I was a shooting guard. College, I, college, in college, basketball I was player. a shooting guard, and I like to shoot. I, I didn't get to play as much as I could have because I didn't like to play defense (laughs) as much as I like to shoot. Uh So, you know, I just say all that to say is whatever team you're on, you got something unique that you can contribute. I think you really, you have to focus on that, what you bring to the table, what you're really good at, and then you make your team better. Then once I got to where I was building my own teams, I tried to fill my gaps where I knew I had weaknesses. I find found people to be on my team or my companies or in my battalion that I felt made uh, short up my weaknesses, and I've done that all the way up. Uh, even when I became chief, my whole staff is, or is any one of them could do my job. Every one of them is smarter and better at something than I am.
0: Do you ever feel guilty that you got the job then? No, not really. Okay,
1: <laughs> you know sometimes you you know you wonder, okay, how how did I end up here? Um, but I guess my if you know all of them, they have their strengths, and we, mine is building a good team and trying to keep them moving forward. Everybody together. Yeah, I, I, I'm somewhat. Uh, you know, I have to have the vision, and I have to rely on them to have the expertise. And uh, like some of these things, you know, I can't be the expert in EMS. I know a lot about it, but I have you know you have to have somebody that can do that. I'm not, you know, I work. I come up through fire suppression. But things are changing, and I don't have time to stay on top of the research. Our, our industry is changing so fast. So I have to have people, and I have to be able to build uh, teams with the capacity to be experts at what I'm not.
0: Let's say 20 years from now, you know, when you're on a beach somewhere, <laughs> wherever you are.
1: You, yeah, you must have looked at my Facebook profile. Uh, no, I didn't. I love to lay I, yeah. I
0: guess, but what would you love to see here with this department, with this city?
1: Well, I would love to see... Um, our city can flourish. I would like for all of our citizens to be sa- be able to be safe out in the community. That's definitely something that I want to see, that I would love to see for our city. I think uh, you know our city has a lot to offer, and but we have some things that we need to work on. I think anybody, everybody knows, you know, a lot of what those are. I think a lot of the things that we respond to, uh, the likelihood of having fires or having medical conditions are definitely impacted by the poverty rate of the community you serve. And I think that definitely drives, you know, the amount of call volume that we see in our city. Uh, both we make a lot of fire calls and a lot of medical. So, you know, I would like to see a healthier Memphis. Uh, as far as as far as the fire department, I would love to see them keep, you know, the department move forward, still being one of the best in the country. Still, i still able to be able to walk in the fire station and, get a cup of coffee, maybe get invited to lunch every now and then. I hear it Because uh, uh, they're still pretty good cooks.
0: <laughs> I bet. So what you're saying is there's certain things that you see that require things over and over again from your department. And if the needle can move on those things more than where they're at now, you see payoff in a lot of ways. Is that yeah. fair?
1: Yeah, ob- absolutely. I think uh, anything that helps our community be healthier and safer you know, helps our firefighters, uh, paramedics in the long run.
0: I read this, and it might be accurate, it might not be, but I, I read that New York City had 2.2 million total calls and was number one in the country. Memphis was number 16 in total incidents with, uh, what would you say, it was close to 200,000 total incidents?
1: Yeah, this past year we made a little over 159,000.
0: So given the size of Memphis and the budget, but also to the performance, can you speak to that?
1: So you know, Memphis, the city of Memphis is spread out, and from a firefighting uh, perspective, that that's particularly important to understand why we're so well staffed. Um, you want to have a fire station within about three miles of any location. Uh, I've got to be able because of uh, we fall up under NFPA. Guidelines on response,
0: national National Fire, fire
1: Protection Association NFPA seventeen ten exactly. If you want to okay. really look up some very interesting, uh, so, but the, everything there are guidelines that we kind of measure ourselves by. You want to be able to put uh, an effective fire response force on the scene at any location, uh, depending on what type of uh, building it is, within a certain time frame. And we kind of measure ourselves uh, by those guidelines. So, the further your community is spread out, the harder it is to get to within those time frames. Right. So that's uh, that's one of the tricky things. We also we only have thirty four ambulances that cover our entire city.
0: And what's what's a normal number and for like a different city? Yeah,
1: so that's thirty four, and they make about eighty percent of our call volume are ambulance calls. So that's why you have we have, and I'll answer this question for anybody that's listening. It's probably the number one question I get asked. I called for an ambulance, and a fire truck showed up. So the the reason for that is those ambulances run pretty much nonstop, back and forth, all day long. We often run out of ambulances throughout the day that we don't have one to respond. On our fire apparatus, the fire trucks, our fire engines, those are the same personnel. We have trained paramedics on most of them, or at least basic, or at least EMTs or EMT Advanced. They have all the same equipment that they have on the ambulance, so they can make, they can arrive on the scene and uh, at least stabilize a patient. They can do everything but transport. The reason that's important is because uh, those fire stations are located strategically across the city. Somebody really planned very well back in the earlier days of our fire department, so that allows us to have a lot of resources. At any one place in the city, in a pretty quick fashion, and I think that's something the citizens should be uh, proud of to have a well-staffed and and well-resourced uh, fire department and EMS service. It does allow us to be able to make that you know that amount of call volume and be able to get places in a timely fashion.
0: So there's a lot of things there that, from a performance standpoint, that you're right. saying that could get overlooked.
1: Oh yeah, there's I mean. There's a lot of science to this, you know. It wasn't—it was in 2014 we changed over. We didn't actually now have mobile data uh, terminals in each fire apparatus and each uh, EMS, each ambulance. So we actually dispatched the closest resource to whatever incident is occurring. Before then, it would just be based on what station that they actually ride out of. And they could be—especially an ambulance could be on one part of—one side of town— and be responding all the way across the town because that's where their home station was. So um, there's a lot of things. Technology is really changing.
0: Right, made things a lot more efficient, yeah, yeah. and that's been needed with without five thousand people at the Coliseum waiting in line to do right. the work.
1: Absolutely, you know. So another thing, uh, another thing that's changing, you know, is is the telemedicine piece. So we now have the capability to do some telehealth interventions on scene without having to transport to a hospital if it's not a life-threatening emergency. So we're starting to roll out that technology that's going to help with having ambulances available for more life-threatening issues when they do occur.
0: Last question I have, you've shared a few things, one about one of your previous partners who had an injury, had to retire, had bales of paper fall on him. I'm sure you have several, but is there a story or two that sticks out with you, where you've just you've seen somebody that you've worked with, that's been with the department. They just went totally sacrificed themselves for the good of somebody else. that's stuck with you and that will always stick with you from doing the work you do.
1: Well, you see, you know, you see a lot. Obviously, the most recent with David Pleasant, just doing his job, driving a fire truck to a, a fire scene and. You know, got hit traveling en route and ended up uh, not surviving that wreck. I guess because cause that one's more recent, you know, as time, they say time heals all wounds. Some of them always kind of stick in the back of your mind. There's there's that. There was the 750 Adams fire where two firefighters got killed and a couple of civilians got killed there as well. You know, that was, there's like 28 years of space in between those instances, but they're both just as real. Uh, to me. So, you know, what I remember, what else I remember from that night is there was a, people, firefighters rescuing people out of ninth floor windows. A lot of people got saved. So you just, all you, you, all of these things, you, uh, s- they stick in your mind. You know, unfortunately, throughout my career, I've been on the scenes where several firefighters lost their lives. And each of those, when I think about them, it's just like it was yesterday. I can remember a lot of details about them, and I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. You know, so some of these things just just stick in your head. And so many things I've seen our firefighters do and our paramedics do, and people you think they're not going to be able to save, and then you'll hear, we got a pulse, or we got them back on the way to the hospital. Those kind of things. You hear those stories time and time again, and, uh, you know, they, those never get old.
0: So what you're saying is time really doesn't heal all wounds.
1: It, does, it doesn't heal all wounds it, it doesn't Especially when it's one of your own That doesn't make it I will say uh, The other one I say is What don't kill you make you stronger So I think I'm a stronger person Because of all of those experiences And I think that Put me in a good spot To emotionally deal with being the chief And trying to teach You know It's kind of like You, you want to be able to teach them From your experiences Without anybody else Having to ever go through that again
0: what are the consequences if you wouldn't have got the help, the training, the counsel emotionally? Maybe another would ask that people that do the work that you do and feel the pain that you feel or feel love for somebody else and you see something that happens to them and they don't have the tools emotionally to handle it, what are the consequences of that?
1: Well, they can be devastating. Um, lost marriages, families being, you know— Losing partners or or things like that, not being able to uh, uh, maintain relationships, uh, self-medicating through alcohol or drugs, uh, becoming dependent on things like that. And one of the worst things is the suicide for a number of reasons uh, that people do, you know, die by suicide. Those are real in the fire service. We've had those uh, incidents here on the department throughout my career that, uh, most several of them i had close for, you know that people i knew had worked within the station which makes it uh even harder um but you hear about those things you know firefighters have to have that that persona of being that tough and and make it through anything but on the inside we're like we're human beings and we have all the same those emotions and uh if they don't deal with them they sometimes they manifest in negative ways and uh can disrupt their lives in a very negative fashion. So uh, I strongly encourage, you know, people, our firefighters, any fire, public safety, police, everybody, uh, you know, your mental health, uh, emotional wellness is very important. Without that, a lot of those other things, you know, your physical health and financial, all of those things can go out the window if you don't stay on top of of it emotionally. We have a lot of resources available here, and I just encourage everybody to take advantage of that.
0: Thank you from the first time we spoke or I called you to today and the headquarters here, your office, how kind your staff has been, how kind you've been. It's been a real privilege to do this and I have a lot of respect and a lot of gratitude for just being a citizen here. So thanks for carving out time, you know, right at the first of the year to do this with me.
1: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, ma'am. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show. And you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.